So John chapter 2, uh, verse 1 to 12. Uh, Gareth has already read some of, uh, some of this for us. I'll just read it, read it again for us, and then we'll pray. And Marcus will come up and speak to us from this passage. So this is the word of God. On the third day, there, were, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, it now became wine, and, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray, folks. Lord God, we are um, humbled to be in your presence this morning. We are blessed uh, to gather together as your people, and we are so thankful and full of joy that we are able to do so freely this morning that we're able to do so and sit under your word and hear from you, to gather among other believers, to encourage one another, to build one another up in your word and by your spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would move among us this morning. I pray for your presence here would be thick and tangible this morning as we hear from your word. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would have ears to hear, Lord. Lord, as we come to, to hear of, um, of the miraculous that you have performed, as we come to testify that you are Lord and you are God, Lord, we want that to sink into our hearts. And Lord, I pray as we, uh, as we listen this morning, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, divide your word among us uh, so that each of us receives what you need us to hear. And apply it to our hearts. Holy Spirit, apply it to us. Encourage us by it. Build us up. Convict us. And Lord, take us out of here and with your name, Jesus, on our lips. Lord, I pray for each of us this morning. I pray for Marcus. As he comes to speak, I pray that your anointing on what he has spoken. I pray that you would anoint his words this morning. I pray that you would speak through him. I pray that you would give him peace this morning in that you are, you are speaking through your word, through him. So, Lord, I pray as we gather, um, Lord, that you will move in power and in might, and we might see you and hear from you this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Ollie. Good morning. Ah, so good to be able to say good morning and actually get a response. As weak as that was, by the way. Uh, but you get nothing over Zoom, so... Anything's better than nothing. 
Um, also, a big thanks to Gareth Bronte for obviously stepping in last minute and doing the sound desk. It was obviously supposed to be somebody else that he was referring to, so thanks, Gareth, for jumping in there. Um, so, yeah, good to be with you this morning. Um, if you've got your Bible, hopefully you will already have it open at John 2, uh, where we're going to be continuing our series in John uh, early on yet. Next week we'll be jumping out of it just for one week, just for Easter morning, and then back into John the following uh, week. So please, if you have a Bible, please open it, um, because we're going to be reading through it and a few other passages. Um, And our goal this morning, as we look at John 2, is going to be um, the same as really John's goal is in the book of John. So John's goal in the book of John is that he will, um, his hearers will um, see something of the identity of Jesus, who Jesus was, so that they will believe in him. Um, this is the same goal as Jesus has in our passage in John 2. So in John 2 and verse um, uh, 11, it says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did a Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is Jesus' goal in John 2 as well, that people would see who he was see his glory and believe in him and come to faith in him. And that's our goal this morning, that you would um, see something of Jesus, see something of his glory, and perhaps for the first time, put your faith and trust in him as your savior. Or if you are a believer, then hopefully this morning we'll see something more of his glory, something more of who he is, and so we will love him even more intensely, that our faith will be bolstered and strengthened in him because of who he is and what he has done. So that's where we're hopefully going this morning. Um, and as we look at this text, I'm gonna, just going to divide it up into two sections. Um, we're going to look at the dialogue between Jesus and Mary because it raises some questions. So if, you, if you've seen this or read this chapter before, if you're anything like me, the dialogue between Jesus and Mary raises some sort of serious questions in your mind. Um, So we're going to look at that dialogue and see what it shows us about Jesus. And then we're going to look at the miracle itself. And we're really only going to look at one aspect of that miracle because what we'll see in this text this morning is that there's so much imagery in this. Jesus is trying to teach us so much through this text. He's trying to teach the people there so much through it as well. So let's, um, let's go, we're going to look at, the, first of all, this dialogue between Jesus and Mary. Let me just read it again. Uh, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So we've got a wedding at Cana. Um, weddings back then were different from now. Uh, Weddings then could have lasted anything from three or four days, wedding celebrations, anything from three or four days up to a week. Um, and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what a nightmare that would be for like your annual leave. Imagine you got three or four, invited to three or four weddings in the year. You'd be like, oh, summer holidays, gone again. No more leave left. You'd be dreading getting an invite to a wedding because that's another week gone. So that, this is literally the way it was. The weddings went on for longer than we would have them here. Um, and we find here at this wedding, we get Mary is invited. Now, Mary's at this wedding. We've, we don't really know why she's there, but 
if judging by her involvement in this wedding, it looks like she's either a close relative or at least a close friend of the family because she's quite heavily involved in it. Um, who else do we have here? We have Jesus and his disciples. Again, Jesus was not invited here based on him being the Messiah because he hadn't yet openly revealed that. And so he was most likely here again, like Mary, as a close friend or relative of the family. And so how this problem arises, which Gareth has already uh, highlighted in his talk with the kids. So we've got this, this sort of uh, problem that arises where they've run out of wine. Um, now, I, yeah, Brussels sprouts, um, I have a region. If the Brussels sprouts didn't turn into cake, I'll be honest, because that would be gross. But um, I, I was sort of thinking of an analogy of this as well, a bit like Gareth. And I, I, I kind of struggled, to be honest, because this was a major, major cultural faux pas. This, this wasn't like as if, um, like us now, if we went to a wedding and the wine ran out, or the slur, whatever, ran out, um, you could just get an alternative beverage, right? So it wouldn't be major. But this was totally different. This was a major cultural, social embarrassment. And I don't even know, I don't think there's anything I could think of that will be close. Garth used the, the, the cake. I was kind of thinking... Um, if you went to a wedding and you realized that there wasn't enough food or something, so you realized that the guests come in and only half the guests, enough food for half the guests, how embarrassing would that be for the planner of the wedding or for the groom, right, or for the groom's dad or whatever, or the bride's dad, I don't know who pays for it anymore. Right? How embarrassing would that be for the couple if only half the guests could have food? Well, I would imagine that probably still doesn't even come close to what's happening here. The wine, wine in both Jewish culture and also right throughout Scripture was this, uh, always bore this symbol of, of joy and abundance. So you, if we read verses like Psalm 104, verse 15, it says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So wine to gladden the heart of man, Psalm 104. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well refined. It's probably, maybe it's a good thing for me to say at this point that... Um, if you realize we're going to be talking about this text and you've come this morning and you think, ah, we're going to see what his stance is on uh, alcoholic wine and consumption of alcohol, I'm really sorry to disappoint you this morning. Um, we're not going to, I'm not going to get into that. You can have a conversation with me one-on-one after and we can, I can give you my view on that. The reason I'm not getting into that is because I think it would do a disservice to the text. It would distract us from what Jesus is actually wanting to show us in this text and so suffice for us to say in this that wine was going to be a central part of this wedding celebration. With the wine not there, then it was almost like this huge like, source of joy was going to be removed and it would bring an emptiness and a sadness to this wedding. And so here we have Mary. Mary steps in, obviously uh, in some form, has some form of organizational role in this wedding. She steps in. And this is where it gets a bit strange because she comes to Jesus and she says something which seems reasonable, but then it looks on face value that she gets a very unreasonable response from Jesus. 
So Mary says, um, tells Jesus the wine has run out. But then in verse 4, Jesus says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, we read things like this, and I don't know if you, we could read it in our culture and be like, you know, Woman, what's that going to do with me? What are you bothering me about? All right, don't we? Even that word woman, woman, for goodness sake, like, we have better things to do than worry about the wine. Don't we? We kind of add in our own sort of cultural understanding to this, and uh, it's not helpful. <laughs> it's definitely helpful in this one. Uh, Jesus isn't being rude to Mary by calling her a woman. Right, so let's look at this address, first of all, how he addresses Mary as woman. He's not being rude. Um, in calling her woman, he wasn't saying it like, like we might say in our culture. He wasn't saying it in a, in a rude way to her. Uh, and so it's not, a, it's not a harsh, rude thing he's saying to Mary. But we also have to be careful in this not to try and soften it too much. So some translations will add in, dear woman, um, which I don't think is a good idea. Because I think then what they're trying to do is they're trying to soften what Jesus says here. But actually what Jesus says there is quite an abrupt rebuke to Mary. And it's supposed to be quite an abrupt rebuke to Mary. But it's not done in an in a unloving, rude way. So why did Jesus say this? Why did he use this word? And how or what did it reveal about his identity? So the term woman seems harsh to us, but all it was, it was simply a formal way of addressing a woman. Just a formal way of addressing a woman. We see this um, later on in John where Jesus meets the, uh, the woman of Samaria in John 4, and he says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And so he's just addressing her, woman, calling her woman. Um, later in John 8, with, when he speaks to the woman caught in adultery, he says, Jesus stood up to her and said to her, Woman, what are, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And then later, um, when Jesus is being crucified in addressing Mary, he says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, referring to the other disciple, then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And so this was a cultural, culturally normal way to address, a respectful way to address a woman. Now, what uh, was not culturally normal was to address your mother in this way. And this is the big difference Loads of commentators would say that there is no parallel anywhere. There is no parallel in any Greco-Roman cultural writing anywhere where you'll find this, where someone in that culture addresses their mother and calls them woman. That, that's different. Like I can imagine if my mom was here, like, you know, we probably do it as kind of a joke, you know, but imagine I, she was here and I was like, all right, woman. You know, if I call her woman, I'd be like, that's, that's, that's not good, right? There's not something going on there. That's not good. And so when the people heard Jesus referring to Mary, his mother, as a woman, that would have been alarm bells. That would have stood out a mile. What is, why is he calling her that? Why is he referring to? 
Why is he referring to her like he refers to any other woman? And so why is Jesus doing this? What is he trying to do? Well, in this one word, Jesus is making a statement. And he's making a statement to Mary. He's saying, Mary, my relationship with you as mother and son is now come to an end. It's now come to an end. And so um, he's saying that he no longer was under the authority of Mary as his mother, but was now fully committed to the authority of the father. And she was no longer in a position here to tell him what to do as his mother uh, or as a mother would a son because his earthly ministry now had officially begun and he now was completely devoted and submitted to the will of the Father and the authority of the Father. Now, Jesus gave Mary a bit of a foretaste of this. Um, If you turn back to Luke, so go to Luke chapter 2 in your Bible. And in Luke chapter 2, this is the account where Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they've been, they've went to the Passover, uh, feast of the Passover. Jesus is 12 years old. They leave and go home. And then the dreaded thing happens where they think, who's got Jesus? Where is he? And they think somebody else has him. And somebody else thinks somebody else has him. And before long, they realize, actually, we left him back in Jerusalem. I'm sure some of you parents have been in that situation. You know, you drove off and realized that your, your head count is one down. It's never good. Um, so they frantically get back. It takes them three days to get back. So that's going to be a worry in three days. They get back to Jerusalem. They get to the temple and uh, they find Jesus. And if you look at verse 46, after three days, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Now, this is a bit of a similar type of almost address here. Jesus is referring to the same thing. He said, uh, like, I, I, I came to earth on a different mission. I came to earth to be about my father's business. So why on earth? Surely you should have known I'd be here. This is why I came to earth. But then the difference in this um, incident is when you get to the next verse. Verse 51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. Now here you see Jesus' mission has always been the same, but here he's only 12 years old. He's still under the authority of his earthly authority of his parents. He has to be submissive to his parents because he's only 12 years old. He's only a boy. But when he later on, he's now grown up, he's now a man, and he's now beginning his open earthly ministry. And now he's saying to Mary, Mary, before, yeah, I, I mean, I, my plan was still, my goals were still the same uh, in life, but I was under your authority, and so I submitted to you then. But now I'm an adult. Now my earthly ministry has openly begun, and so now my submission is to the Father and to the Father alone. And so when he addresses Mary as woman, he's saying, Mary, now I am seeing you as I see every other woman. 
I am addressing you respectfully like I respect every other woman. And there's something really interesting at the end of that passage in Luke. At the end of verse 51, it says, And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. See, Mary tucked that scene away in her heart. And she went and she mulled over it and wondered, what did that mean? I wonder when she's now got to this in John 2, is it now starting to make sense now? Now I get what he meant. And so here is a difficult, this, this might seem like a, a, a sort of a difficult thing to understand, but Jesus is really trying to address Mary's understanding of their relationship. Mary was presuming on her relationship with him as his mother in asking him to do something about this problem here. Uh, but Jesus has said, no, Mary, those days are done. Those days are over. Those days of me submitting to you as a son are now over, and now I submit to the Father and the Father alone. Mary would have no special rights to Jesus based on being his earthly mother. Jesus was now looking on her and treating her like he would any other woman. And the thing is, this was a good thing for Mary. This wasn't a bad thing. See, in this one word, Jesus is establishing that we are all on equal playing field. He puts us all on an equal playing field with this one word. He's saying, I'm not even going to give my mother special treatment here. We're all on equal playing field. We all have equal access to the Father through the Son. Even Mary didn't have special access to Jesus. There was only one way to the Father, and she would have had to come and believe in him as well, just like anybody else. And so, as I said, this might seem like a sad thing for Mary, but this was a good thing. If Jesus simply remained her son, and if Jesus remained sort of in some way, in any way, under the submission or authority of Mary, then he would never have been able to be her redeemer. He would never have been able to be her savior because I imagine she would never have allowed him and she would have done everything in her power to fight against him being nailed to a cross. But now Jesus was under the full authority of the Father and he was going to die later for the sins of both the people there and also Mary. And so here in this one word, Jesus has given us a sign. He's shown us and he's shown the people there that he, isn't, he didn't come to earth to be the son of Mary. He came to earth to be and as the son of God. He is the son of God. There's only one way to be accepted by God. For us, your upbringing doesn't matter. Your upbringing does not have any bearing on whether you are a Christian or not, or whether you could become a Christian or not, or whether you are accepted by God or not. It has nothing to do with your upbringing. In fact, this is good news as well, because some of us have a horrendous upbringing and a horrendous past, and Jesus is saying, that doesn't count, right? Your family relations, your family upbringing, anything like that doesn't count. You're all on equal playing field here. Your religion doesn't bear any effect. Your religion doesn't hold any sway as well with me. How religious you are. He's putting us all on equal playing field here with just one word, woman. But what does he say to her then? 
That's how he addresses her. What does he then say to her? Which again um, needs a bit of explanation. And so he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, what does this have to do with me? Again, I'm no expert in um, ancient writings or ancient uh, literature, but what I'm told is that the main thrust and sway of this uh, saying is really, um, woman, what, what do you and I have in common in relation to this sort of, you know, with the matter that is at hand here? What, what do you and I have in common in looking at this? And the implied answer is nothing. Jesus is saying here, Mary, you're looking at this situation and, and you're looking at the social embarrassment involved here. And I get that. Yes, it's a socially embarrassing thing. You're looking at this and all you're seeing is that. All you're seeing is a shortage of wine. But he says, I'm looking at this through my eternal lenses and I'm seeing something totally different. I'm approaching this totally different. Jesus wasn't saying here that he wasn't going to do it. Like, this isn't Jesus saying, hey, that's nothing to do with me. And then later on he does it, and he says, oh, well, okay then, I'll do it then this once. This, this situation, this scenario was planned out by Jesus from before the world began. Right? He planned this out. He planned this shortage of wine out. And he planned in this miracle of um, turning water into wine. But he had a very different reason for planning this out than Mary had. His motives and what he was going to do in this miracle were miles apart from Mary's motives. Mary was just thinking, I don't want them to be socially embarrassed. I don't want them to be without wine. Jesus is like, you're thinking like that, but my mind is miles away. My motivation is miles away of what I'm going to do here. You have no idea what I'm going to try and teach through this. You have no idea why I'm doing this. And so he's sort of again making this separation. He's revealing here that his mind is fixed on the plan. See, Jesus' mind has always been fixed on the plan. Plan A. His mind has always been fixed on his redemptive plan. When he was 12, we've seen that. And now it's still the same. It hasn't changed. It's fixed on this plan. What is the plan that his mind is fixed on? Well, in John chapter 6, verse 38 to 40, it says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. But raise it up on the last day. See, Jesus' mind here is always on that last day. That's the end goal for Jesus. That's where he's wanting to get to. That's why he came to earth, to get people to that last day. Now, I don't know, for any of you that have been at... So, I'm sure most of us have been at a wedding, right? Some weddings are good, and some weddings you just rather not be at, right? But anyway, that's another story. Um, I remember going to a wedding. Oh, I can't even say it, because they'll probably be listening. Forget that. Right, um, so, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... But do you ever go to a wedding and if, say, have you ever went to a wedding as you've been engaged? You're engaged and you go with your fiance and all and you get all dressed up and you go to a wedding and you sit there and you're holding hands, all romantic and uh, it's all brilliant. And you're in that wedding, right? And you're going through the ceremony, watching on. What are you thinking about? Any money, at, at least the female, is thinking about your wedding. And you're thinking about what you're not going to do that these guys are doing. <laughs> I would never do that. I would never wear that 
look at the shape of her, right? Or, yeah, whatever, right? So your, thing, your mind is drawn to your wedding. Now, do you think that Jesus, I wonder, as Jesus comes to this wedding, is his mind on a greater wedding? Is his mind on his wedding? Is his mind on that great marriage supper of the Lamb? Yes, because that's always on his mind, that end day, but raised it up on the last day. So here's what his mind is, is stead on. Look at Revelation. Turn to Revelation 19. And the reason we're looking at this is because what, what we're trying to see is that the difference between where Jesus' mind was at that wedding and where Mary's mind was. Mary's mind was very superficially on just superficial things and embarrassment. Jesus' mind was miles away over here. Here's where Jesus' mind was. Look at Revelation 19. We're going to read through a few of these verses. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Um, This is Revelation 19, verse uh, 6. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold it to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the wedding that Jesus is thinking about. It's not that he doesn't care about this other wedding, but it's not primary in his mind. He's thinking about a greater wedding, and his mind has never veered off that. This is what he is. His mind is stuck on his redemptive process to get people to that marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Jesus is saying here, Mary, I'm going to do something much greater than simply perform a miracle, as great as that is, than simply perform a miracle here of turning water into wine. I have bigger plans for this. Yes, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to give a sign of who I am. I'm going to reveal something of my glory in this so that people will believe in me and have eternal life. So the address... To Mary, the dialogue between Mary, Jesus is revealing so much. He's revealing that he's the Son of God, the Messiah, and he's revealing and showing that his mind is fixed on his redemptive plan to have his bride at that final marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So then let's look at the, the miracle, and we're not going to spend as much time actually on this, but look at the miracle. So here we have Jesus. Uh, he asks them to fill um, six water jars with water. Now, we could look at loads of imagery even with that, but what we want to look at is the type of water jars that he's asked them to fill. He's asked them to fill with these water jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. That's a strange thing. Why did he not just use normal drinking jars? Surely that would have been a bit, you know, less weird. Was it because there were no drinking jars left, maybe? Well, there were because they ran out of wine, so there was a room full of empty jars. Was it because it was just there were the ones that were closest? Oh, grab them jars there, they'll do. No, Jesus never does anything like that. Why did he use these? Well, these jars would have been used um, for like literally washing hands and feet and to try and um, purify people. They would have used maybe for utensils and cups but it's used in this ritualistic purification process. So why did he use these? Well, I think in Jesus, in using these, again, was trying to reveal something about who he was. It's obviously something in relation to purification, why he used it. And in this, Jesus is showing the people here, I'm the ultimate purifier. I'm the ultimate purifier. Wine, yes, was a symbol of joy and abundance, but we also know that wine was a symbol of something else. And so I could ask anyone in this room, I could even ask the kids in this room probably, like when you hear about wine in the Bible, what, what do you think of? And some of us will say, well, that reminds me of communion, doesn't it? Because that's what we do at communion. Yes, wine is also a picture of Jesus' blood. It's a symbol of Jesus' blood. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's saying, yeah, you... You grab those purification jars and you fill them up with what you normally use to purify. Water. Just fill them up with the water, what you normally do. And then you watch me. You watch me transforming that into wine. You watch me changing that, what you normally use, into something that I'm going to use into wine. And what's he saying in that? Jesus wasn't just thinking about this final marriage supper of the Lamb. But he was also thinking about his hour. Isn't that what it says in verse uh, 4? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His hour. See, his mind was on the marriage supper of the Lamb, but it was also on how he was going to have his bride at that marriage supper of the Lamb. And in order to have his bride at that marriage supper of the Lamb, they were going to need to be purified, not with water, but with blood. And so in doing this simple act of changing water that they normally use for purifying into blood, Jesus is showing the emptiness of their rituals and religion and all of that. He's saying all of this, see all your attempts to purify yourself? It's all worthless. It's worthless. I'm going to replace all of that with a way that is eternal, that gives eternal purification. I'm going to replace it with my blood. Look at um, Hebrews 9, 14. Let me read you a few verses that refers to this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Or Hebrews 1, 3. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or 1 John 1, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us or purifies us from all sin. And so Jesus is stating here, he has come to provide a way. I've come to provide a way for you to be eternally cleansed. Eternally cleansed, not from just a few things, but from all uncleanness, from all unrighteousness, from all sin. This is what Jesus is trying to do in this turn water into wine. Yes, he's trying to show his miraculous power that he's able to do that. Of course, he's shown that's one aspect of his glory that he's shown. He has power over nature. But he's also trying to do so much more in this. He's trying to show who he's, why he's come to earth. I've come to be the purifier, the ultimate purifier that you need. I've come to replace all your empty religion. And I've come to give you eternal purification. He's saying the days of you trying to purify yourself are over. Because I'm here. The days of you trying to make yourself clean and good are over because I'm here. I've come to cleanse you. So stop trying. See, some of us and some of you, um, we're, we're trying to clean ourselves up. Right? We try to clean ourselves up. I spent a lot of my life, <coughs> early life, trying to clean myself up. You know, you do the things... You go to church, make sure and read your Bible, make sure and pray, make sure and, you know, don't swear, make sure, and all, all good things, by the way, all really good things, but why we do them is important. Are we doing it because we still feel that we need to either earn God's salvation or earn God's favor or just keep it topped up? So for some of us, um, we're like... Yes, we're maybe believers and we believe that God has saved us, but then there's a part of us that kind of thinks, well, yeah, but, you know, I need to keep it up here. You know, I better keep doing this because he could lose favor with me here, so we better keep this whole relationship thing, keep it topped up. And Jesus has said, all your attempts are futile. You don't need to do that. Because my blood has covered that. My blood has covered all of your sins. My sacrifice was full. Those jars were full to the top. He's saying there's enough there to cover everybody's sin. There's enough there to cover all of your sin. Like there was more than enough wine. And we haven't even looked at the amount of wine. There's more than enough wine there. This feast had already obviously was a few days in. And now they're coming near the end of it. And then Jesus comes and fills up, gives them gallons and gallons of wine. His blood is enough to cover all of our sin and all of your unrighteousness. So no matter what your past has been or what you are at the minute, Jesus is saying that his blood, his grace is enough and it covers all sin. And so as we finish this morning, Jesus came to earth and remained. he remained committed uh, to and obedient to the Father's will. 
That's so important. Imagine he'd veered off track just for a moment. But he carried the weight of this plan, plan A. Imagine that. Imagine carrying the weight of plan A all through your life, even as a boy. Imagine knowing what that was going to entail. Imagine he, he bore the weight of the R all through his life. And he knew what the R would entail all through his life. And yet he never once veered off track. He carried the weight of this. He went to the cross and he poured out all, he poured out his blood, which cleanses us from all sins. And what he calls you to do today, he calls on you to believe in him, realize who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's not the Son of Mary. He's the Son of God. Believe in him today. Believe that you're a sinner. You need forgiven. You need cleansed. And believe that when you call out to him, when you cry out to him to forgiveness and for cleansing, he will cleanse. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He just wants you to believe in that today. And if you're a believer, believe that for you as well. You don't have to top up your, your Christianity. You don't have to top it up so that Jesus stays in favor with you. He always will be in favor with you. He's the purifier. He makes us righteous in the eyes of God, not us. And so rest in that today. Rest in that today. Believe that he wants you. He wants you to be there at that final marriage supper of the Lamb as his bride. He wants you to be there. Believe in him today so that you too can be forgiven and be with him at that final marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me pray. Jesus, we, um, we are sinners. We're all sinners. We're all in need of your salvation. We're all on play, equal playing field. Jesus, thank you that you've shown us that not even your own earthly mother could get around this. She also equally was in need of salvation. So God, will you help us to see something of you today that will draw our hearts more to you? God, if there are people in this room today that do not know you, that haven't uh, put their saving faith in you, will you help them right now through the power of your Holy Spirit to do that, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? And God, if there are those of us here who um, are believers, will you help us to, um, our factions to be warmed to you, Jesus? Will you help us to just see just another glimpse of your glory so that we could, can rest in you and worship you and have faith in you more? Jesus, will you be glorified through this today? I pray this in your worthy name. Amen.